Welcome to the Lancefield on the Line podcast for strategic leaders. At your best, you make smart choices about where to focus to achieve big, bold ambitions. I'm your host, David Lancefield. In this series, I search the world for executives, entrepreneurs, and management thinkers who've got something new, distinctive, and meaningful to say on the topics of strategy, leadership, and culture. I delve deep into their thinking and experiences to draw out ideas and practices you can use. This episode is about how to crack the code on organizational culture. I can't remember a time in my career where culture has been more popular and more necessary as a topic in management circles. It may still be a consequence of the pandemic, which shifted how we think about the role work plays in our lives, and indeed how we work, reducing the dominance of the office for many of us. However, talking about culture is one thing, improving it, evolving it into something better, more inclusive, higher performing is quite another. My guest in this episode, Aga Bayer, is one of the leading authorities on culture. She advises startups and scale-ups, convenes culture leaders to share their best thinking and practices, and writes and talks about it eloquently and incisively. In this episode, we talk about what it takes to develop a greater sense of belonging, and indeed what that actually means and involves. We also talk about what fun is and the importance of fun in culture, and why it's more than just superficial fun. We also talk about what it takes to scale up efforts on culture to something bigger and bolder. Aga also describes her way of surfacing the stories of how, where, and why people do their best work and why that's important. So if you're looking to supercharge the performance of your team, this episode is certainly for you. The same goes if you're leading major organizational change. Aga generously shares her wisdom and offers plenty of tips and actions you can take. So here we go then. Do enjoy the episode. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you today, Aga. I've loved reading, listening, watching all of your work on organizational culture. And of course, we worked together too with a client, uh, which went very well. And I love that collaboration. And you created a fantastic burgeoning community of culture leaders called the Culture Brain Community. And you're clearly a host and a very successful host of one of the best podcasts out there on culture, Culture Lab. So, of course, Kel Surprise, we're going to be talking about culture and how to crack the code as, as somebody who doesn't just talk about it, write about it, but actually does it themselves and with organizations. I want to get really practical and really real and how you can create a not, not only a higher performance culture, but a, a culture that has you know, fun, meaning and belonging, the ingredients of culture. So that's what we're going to cover today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me and thank you for your kind words. Pleasure, pleasure. So, of course, culture is probably one of those management terms that's probably the most popular at the moment for a number of reasons. Yet when we talk about it, people use it very loosely, I find. So let's just start with your definition. What do we actually mean by culture? So I think, you know, one of the simplest definitions of culture that I use is that it's a shared of unwritten rules that drive the way we behave at work. So the way we collaborate, the way we approach our relationships at work, et cetera, et cetera. And when you dive deeper into that, you realize that these unwritten rules uh, emerged as a result of shared experiences and how people make sense of these experiences. So as an example, in my previous job many, many years ago in the early 2000s, when I actually joined my first consultancy, my colleagues literally gasped in terror when I told them that I gave the senior partner 
some honest feedback because essentially wasn't something that was expected or accepted over there. And for me, you know, coming from Eastern Europe, we are quite straightforward and honest. So I had to do some adjusting there to that culture in order to be accepted and in order to be able to succeed. Because clearly some behaviors can be career limiting moves for people. And especially when they can't sense what those unwritten norms are. So it's an interesting thing because, of course, no one puts them in a book and people need to learn what is expected from them by observing others. And so in that sense, culture is this phenomenon, and I often talk about this as being a movement rather than a mandate, because you basically sit next to someone, you observe how they engage with others, how they work, and you figure out based on that what those unwritten norms are. It's very practical, it's very real. It's how work gets really done. Uh, it's much more than a sort of value statements, if you like, that you pin on a, a wall, a virtual or, or real, real wall. But you said unwritten rules there, but I know that you do work on codifying culture. So tell me more about why that's important. So codifying culture is trying to capture some of these unwritten rules with particular focus on what are the rules that have helped them historically to be successful so far, and also that will probably help us be successful in the future. And the reason why it's important to codify that, and especially, I think, in organizations that we work with, we work a lot with high-growth organizations, the reason why it's important to codify that is that there are moments where a lot of new employees join the organization. And sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where actually the core team that perhaps started that company or started that department is smaller than the newcomers. And clearly, these newcomers are going to bring their own culture, their own assumptions, their own mindsets, their own attitude. And sometimes it can overpower and overwhelm the culture that you have been able to cultivate so far and the culture that has helped you to be successful. This is exactly one of the reasons why we see a lot of high growth organizations fail very often or face major challenges with their culture. So I believe that it's important to know what helps you be successful, what are those unwritten rules. And that's one of the paths that help you to scale the right culture, the desired culture as well. Because, you know, just to be really practical about it, if you don't know what your desired culture is, then how are you going to hire the right people to help you succeed, right? Or how are you going to develop your people if you don't know what you are really optimizing for? So, how, so, so, so on that, so, so imagine you are a fast growth organization, lucky you, or not luck, perhaps skill, uh, as well as luck. Yeah. You have some form of culture in place. It's captured. People know about it. They've written it down. How do you stay open-minded enough and flexible enough to evolve that culture? Because yes, you're hiring for a sort of a culture that's set, but if you're hiring, you want people to improve it, change it, evolve it. So how, how do you get the balance right between saying, look, this is it versus actually having a culture that's so flexible that actually people can't quite find a way to, to work through it? Are you yeah. being too structured or being too flexible? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, there are certain principles that rarely change over time in strong and great cultures. And typically we talk about core values, that piece of your culture that you want to preserve. And often a lot of companies, I see a lot of companies, obviously, because I live in a culture bubble and I work with organizations who really invest a lot of time and energy in doing those things. So I see a lot of companies actually spend a lot of time and energy on identifying what are those core values that help us be successful and what are the things that we stand for. And this is one of those elements of your culture that you actually want to preserve. You want it to be perennial. You don't want it to change over time. However, having said that, for example, if you have a value like we care and we care about the planet and we care about our people and we care about our customers, the way this value expresses itself is going to depend on the context. Yes. And newcomers with new experiences can absolutely bring new ways of bringing this to life. So when you ask me about how can it evolve, it can certainly evolve in the way these values manifest themselves in ways of working, right? So that's, that's one thing. And I also think that there are moments in time where organizations need to rethink even these core principles. And I have personally done this work with some organizations where they said, well, we have had these values for a few decades now. And we wonder and are curious if these values still express what we stand for and who we are as a collective. So let's talk to our people and find out. And very often what we do is we actually collect stories of success and challenges and how people dealt with those things. And we decode these stories for those principles to do a reality check and see whether the culture needs to evolve, whether it needs to be explicitly stated as a change. And often you do find that there is a core that remains the same, but also you have been unaware of major strengths that helped your organization to be successful that were not expressed no, that's in, in your uh, current, let's say, culture playbook or whatever you want to call it. And also, obviously, what you realize when we have this, these conversations, and often we'll ask three questions. One is, what do we need to stop doing if we want to bring our vision to life? What we need to start doing if we want to bring our vision to life? And of course, what are the things that we need to continue? And especially the answers to what do we need to stop doing and start doing can be quite revealing as to how does our culture need to evolve? And for me, it always needs to be placed within the context of business strategy and what we are trying to accomplish as a business. I'm glad you said and that. It's like I, I told I know you that to say we are that. Fully aligned on this. <laughs> there you go. Um, we work together, and I know how you think about this topic. It's incredibly important because you know there are organizations, and actually, we do have members in our community who shared the story with me. They said, you know, I worked for startups and scale ups that had a great culture, but they failed. You know, they were not successful. So what does it mean to have a great culture? I think it's an important question. Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, an, a great culture is a culture that actually helps you people to do the best work of their careers and helps your business be successful as well. Oh, I love that. You just threw that one in at the end. That little sound, that's brilliant. Well, it's all brilliant. Because I've, I know the power of this work and your work, but I've also worked with many people who would say, well, this is an HR issue. 
storytelling's a bit soft, values. God, I've got a P&L to deliver. I've got financial results to smash my targets around. You know, so how, what do you say to people when you come across them who at a, phys- a philosophical, perhaps a private level, think, yeah, I get the power of it. But actually, they've been brought up in a very mercenary, very financially driven organization. They say, that's a bit soft. Is it soft? It's definitely not soft, at least not in my perception. I think these are the real issues that your organization faces. And actually, when you talk to these people who are very hardcore, very numbers oriented, and when you ask them a few questions, for example, you know, what stands in the way of your ability to accomplish the results, you know, for the next quarter? Very often, they will mention the markets and the competition and budgets. But even more frequently, what I hear is that actually there's something about we work together. There's something about how people show up at work that is not helpful. And ideally, they would like it to change. So even the hardcore numbers people do recognize that human aspect and relationships and the way we operate at work can really make or break any department, any organization. So it's just a matter of, I think, bringing it to reality and talking about what do you want to accomplish? What stands in the way? What would need to happen for you to be successful? And then suddenly they're willing to have a conversation and they are willing to explore how to do this work. Imagine you have done that work on refreshing the core values that underpin the organization and you've you've set out some core behaviors some actions uh, that, that are aligned with that that drive those values day to day how do you activate it where do you use it what are the what are the key moments in an organization that help you bring that culture to life in your experience i really love this question because not a lot of people do this work what we see happen is Yes, we create those wonderful value statements and mission statements, and we do the big rollout and tell everyone in the company, finally, you know, this is who we are, this is what we stand for, da-da-da, and then crickets, nothing. And so for me, what happens after that is incredibly important. And I love the question about activating your culture through important moments. I really like the work of Dan Heath and his brother, um, Chip, and this beautiful book about the power of moments. And so I got inspired by that. And I, I use it now in my work with organizations. And they talk about the fact that there are certain moments, whether it's in a customer journey or employee journey, that really play a major role. They are memorable. They can be transformational. They really stick with people. And when I reflected about what happens in organizations, I realized that each employee has a journey, you know, from the moment that they interview with the organization to the final day when hopefully someone carries out an exit interview with them. And a lot of things happen in between. And the big question is, how can we leverage these moments on this employee journey to really embed and activate the culture that we want yes, to cultivate yes. in our organization. So for example, we talk about moments of elevation. These are the moments that rise above what happens in daily work. It can be your first day on the job. 
It's one of those days that people remember. It's an elevated moment. It can be a moment when you win an important client account. It can be a moment when, you know, you had a major failure and, and sticks out as well. You know, when you look back at your year and the big question is, what can we do then? So my approach to this is I really like to look at what the employee journey in an organization looks like and then identify these moments, either moments of elevation or moments of insight, where basically it's about rewiring the way we think about problems, et cetera, et cetera. And these could be, for example, performance conversations, debriefing a project and stuff like that. These could be moments of pride where we celebrate our successes, right? So identifying these moments and then thinking, right, do we have systems, practices, or processes in place that create a scaffolding for the right culture to emerge in these moments and elevate our culture um, significantly during these moments? So oh, I again, love that. I love that example. scaffolding. And the elevation, uh, I love your language, I love your vivid, clear language, aligns to the point that I've seen uh, best and worst in organizations where you do great work, you find the moments that matter. And quite a, what is quite a systematic analytical approach. It's not soft and fluffy. It's quite a detailed approach. But then they miss out one aspect. Yeah. So if you, to your point about celebration, they perhaps talk about a behavior. They might recruit people with that skill set, that behavior, um, uh, promote them and so forth. And then, but when it comes to um, recognition, more broadly in the organisation, they default back to the old, the, the old guard, yes. uh, the people who are doing the old stuff. And then you have that one moment, you think, "Hang on, that no. doesn't sit with me." So you need coherence with that. And I guess that links to a point, somebody where I see a lot of culture work that starts on in a pilot approach, maybe in a team, a business unit, a division. They do what you've described, so they map the journeys, and then somebody at the top says, "Wow." That looks good. That feels good. I've seen the results from it. We want that across the whole organization. And then I think you used the word crickets earlier. Crickets. <laughs> or they copy paste like a format that's worked in one division and assume it works for all the others. How do you scale those pilots successfully? Now, it's such a great question. And it's what you've described is so real in the world that I inhabit as well. So true that these pilots don't often translate. And I thought about this a lot. And here's what I see, David, and I, I'm curious what you think about this. One thing that I've noticed is that very often we don't stop and we don't ask ourselves the question, right, so if we now implement it in this part of the organization, who are the people at that would resist this or perhaps try to maintain the status quo? And what are the reasons for it? And this question is not about vilifying people or pointing fingers at the old God. It really needs to be approached with empathy and willingness to understand because often there will be reasons there why what we are trying to accomplish is not going to work. And it's really important to understand that. So number one is identify who and why is going to want to maintain the status quo or resist change. Number two, I think one of the things that we don't do is exactly what you've mentioned. We don't customize it. We don't let the people on the ground to take a framework and customize it to their reality and make it their own. 
And we all know that, of course, when we are a part of creating something, our commitment to actually executing it is so much higher. So it's really important to engage people in that process of co-creation. And it's also important to, you know, not to assume that everyone is going to be so excited about it and so committed. And again, we want to give people some scaffolding until it becomes second nature. And especially when we look at behavioral change, let's say that you want to create an organization that is more customer focused, right? And you don't have let's say, a professional CRM system. It doesn't make sense, right? You really need to figure out, do we have the tools and do we have the support to make these behaviors that we expect from our people as easy as possible? So that's number two. And number three, David, what I've noticed that we often don't do is we also need to identify who are the informal influencers in that part of the organization. Because very often the people who have the formal power don't have the social capital and the credibility with the rest of the team for them to be able to lead that. So I'd really encourage everyone who listens to this to reflect on who are the people who have the relationships and the trust of the team that people look up, look up to that could be great mo- role models for this or really great change agents in this? And don't assume that these are going to be your managers in all cases. And also don't assume that the people who volunteer for this project, right, whatever you want to call it, the pilot, that they are going to be the best people to do it. This is probably one of the things that I learned really late in my career, and I wish I knew it earlier. The volunteers have the passion, and we do want to engage them, but sometimes they don't have everything that it takes to drive change. So again, back to that social capital and back to that credibility, it's really interesting, if you can, to map your organization and identify who are these hubs that can help you drive this change. That's so powerful. All those steps. Gosh, this is laden with so many good actions people can use. The thing I'd add to it would be, if you are in another division that's heard about this great story, the framing of that story or that example is so important. If it's framed as, here's something we may learn from and obviously apply on our own, that's very different from, here's another group, they've done better, what are you doing? Which is, I've been subject to the latter. And it puts, you know, increases your anxiety, makes you a little bit competitive. And also you have to be clear on the reasons for change. Okay, they were clear on their reasons. Why should we change? We're doing all right. And often that step is skipped uh, in the process. So true. I want to delve back deeper into your, the three elements of your approach and your work to, to culture. And you talk about, and I may get the order wrong, so forgive me, but you talk about fun, meaning, and belonging. Uh, I will start with fun because that's the slightly counterintuitive one. I'm not a, people would say, gosh, David, you're being boring here. But I mean, <laughs> organizations that are working in tough environments, they, they are serious organizations, whatever that is. How important and why is fun so critical to, to culture when the context often isn't fun? Yeah. So I get so much pushback 
around this word. It's a triggering word in the business environment. People don't like it. And I even heard clients say, we certainly don't want it to be fun. It's a serious issue and we want our people to approach it with seriousness. I fell into that trap. Okay. Humor me. And and there is this bias that, you know, that, that we need to be serious about serious work and it shouldn't be fun. I think it's cultural. The interesting thing that I found in my primary research that I've done, so I interviewed around 3,000 people by now, interviewed and surveyed around 3,000 people. And basically I asked them one question. And the question is, tell me about a time you did your best work. And then we decode these interviews and certain themes emerged, including fun. But the thing is about the fun that people told me about, it is not the shallow fun of, you know, let's have a Friday pizza party or table tennis. It's really about the joy of work itself. And one of the elements when we really have fun with the work itself is we are sufficiently challenged and supported at the same time to succeed. Yes. Right? And I think everyone can relate to this when you think about your hobbies or something that you've learned recently. When it starts and it becomes enjoyable, it's that moment when you feel you still need to be switched on and engaged with the activity. It's it's not routine. You are learning something new. You are becoming better. And you have the tools or you have the support to succeed at it. If yeah, you don't, it can be very frustrating. I'm thinking tennis, for example. You know, if you don't have a great tennis racket and it gets in the way, it can be frustrating. And it's exactly the same at work. We want to achieve great results. We want to be successful. But we need this Goldilocks zone of the right challenge with the right support. And very often people don't have it at work. And work is therefore not fun. The second thing that people mentioned when they talked about a sense of fun at work is the joy that comes from co-creating and collaborating with others. So we do want to engage with others. Teamwork is incredibly important. And it's not just incredibly important for outcomes. I think this is something that everyone agrees now that we need teamwork to achieve great things. But actually, we need teamwork and connections also to feel fulfilled and to feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And it gives us a sense of joy when it goes well. And everyone relates with it. And then the final element is about humor and about levity and about not taking everything too seriously. And research supports this. So whilst it might sound a little bit fluffy, when you look at research, you realize that what humor does or what levity does it helps our brains to relax and we can use our prefrontal cortex instead of being hijacked by our amygdala and being in this stress response, fight or flight response. So it helps innovation. It helps collaboration. It actually helps us to achieve better results. That's so it. when you put these That's three it. things together, you really have an environment that is genuinely fun, but fun in a way, not in a way of, you know, Facebook scrolling or binge watching Netflix, but the deep fun, I call it deep fun, that gives us a sense of fulfillment. And that's something that that is missing from a lot of workplaces. And I have to say, in Culture Brain, we're on a mission to change that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. I look back on my own career and think, 
there were many times where I was so focused on the outcomes and the results, so charged up and probably a bit insecure, consciously, sometimes unconsciously, that it was intense. And actually, some people flourished in that environment. Many people, yes. I look back and think, oh, God, I just needed to give them a break. That levity uh, that you talk about. So that's fun. We're going to... I just want to jump in here, David, because I think that a lot of people can resonate with what you have just shared. And I think that intensity is not bad in itself, right? And actually, when you think about things that people do for fun, for example, you know, marathons or rock climbing, it is intense. And that's exactly why it's fun, right? But that balance of intensity with levity and... Yeah. And, and it's how you, and how you give people space to breathe and how you give... So it's intensity, but they have to be able to, if you like, shape their own intensity as opposed to being imposed on them. It's a bit like that right. sort of yeah. comment I remember being in a meeting once. I won't say which organization, but it was sort of, I want you to be really innovative and creative. <laughs> and I like really forceful voice. And it's like, okay, fine. And some people love that intensity and others are like, got to be kidding. That was fun and deep fun. Meaning, I think we've got a sense of, I want to just move on to, and that's important, but let's talk about belongings. I know that's a topic that you're spending a lot of time thinking about, researching about, writing about. And I have a very mixed relationship with the word belonging. At, at one, one level, I get it. We want to feel a deep connection, a sense of belonging, the fact that we can be ourselves in an organization. But I do wonder, and I'd love your take on this, I do wonder whether that's asking too much. I know many people who haven't and may feel belonging to a group of people around them, a project, an issue, a topic. When you ask them, do you feel a deep belonging to the organization you're part of? They sort of say, not so much. And that hasn't stopped them performing well. So how critical is a deep belonging to the organization you work with in order to perform at your best and be your best? So I think what's important to be able to answer this question is to define what belonging is. And the way I define it is a sense that you are being valued for who you are and a sense that you can add value. So it's a mutual relationship. <clears throat> On one hand, you are being seen, included, heard, understood, known, and valued as an individual. On the other hand, you can add value to the organization as well. And when you think about those things, it becomes clear that actually without it, we cannot do anything. If you are not being seen, if you are not being included, if you are not being heard, if you are, you are not being known and understood, yes, you can potentially do some tasks and perhaps even do them well. But my question is, are you doing your best work? That's a big question. Yes, yes. And are you really unlocking your potential there? And I think not. And this is why I suppose this was one of the emerging themes when we ask this question, tell me about a time when you did your best work. We can do good work without a sense of belonging, but we can't do great work without that kind of a sense of belonging. But I do understand the pushback around, well, I don't necessarily feel like I belong to this organization. And I don't think that you necessarily have to feel like you belong to an organization. I think what's important for us, if we want to be able to do our best work, is to feel like we belong with the group that we work with. Yes. And there is a nuance there. 
and an important difference between belonging to and belonging with. For me, belonging with a group is a mutual relationship where you cultivate that relationship with all these elements that I have mentioned before, where you know that you are being known, you know that you are being understood, you know that you are being valued and vice versa. And sense of belonging, when you ask people about their best work experiences, they will always talk about that sense in the team that they were a part of. So belonging to an organization, perhaps not necessarily. Belonging with the team of your closest team members, I think absolutely necessary if you want to truly unlock people's potential. Well, that's brilliant. I love that nuance. I might use that and credit you, as, as, <laughs> I, so? as I always do. You'll have come across lots of statements on culture in your work online and various platforms. What are the ones particularly irritate you because they're either blatantly wrong or they're misrepresentative? What, are the, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Well, I try not to get irritated too much about those things. Good. But That's a good start. But don't, don't doubt the question. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that irritates me a little bit although it's partially true, is that statement that we hear often that culture starts at the top. And clearly it is true. Clearly, the role of senior leaders is incredibly important. They cast a long shadow, et cetera, et cetera. However, the problem with that statement is that usually the conversation ends there. And what's implied is that it's important for leaders to role model the behaviors that they want to see in their organization. Unfortunately, this is not enough because role modeling can only work when there is proximity. And typically, a typical CEO interacts a lot with their board and other senior leaders, but not with the entire organization. And so actually, the job of senior leadership when we talk about cultivating a great culture is thinking, how can we create a distributed network of culture yes. leaders within yes. our organization rather than focusing on what we're doing from the top? And the second thing that is not a part of this conversation that kind of annoys me is we don't talk enough about building the systems and systemic thinking around culture. You know, it's not enough to say, as I've mentioned, we want to be a customer-oriented organization. So just go the extra mile, you know, and figure out what your customers' needs are. People need some support. They need the tools. They need the technology to be able to accomplish that. And yes, this very often starts from the top because these are the decision makers. If you don't decide to invest in the right tools for your people, it is going to be difficult to cultivate that culture. So I find this conversation about culture quite shallow, especially when we talk about the role of leaders in, in changing organizational culture. And I think it doesn't serve anyone. Not to mention, by the way, that I think it's being weaponized a little bit. So people are like pointing fingers and saying, you know what? We don't have a, a great culture because we have, you know, bad leaders who don't think about how to create a great environment for people. So yeah, I guess this is probably one of the annoyances that stands out for me. See, I got there. I got there in the end. I could sense <laughs> there was something there. And what about you then? Let's, we always talk in last foot on the line about the, the guests, not only their, their work, but themselves. You've been building your own culture brained community 
a group of culture leaders, fantastic group from what I see. What's been the hardest thing to get right as you built that, the culture of that group? Well, very specifically for this specific community, the biggest challenge that we have, in full honesty, is engagement. And I suppose not engagement in the sense of employee engagement, but how can we engage people in mutual support and learning around this? And one of the reasons for this is that every single person that we have in our community is an extremely busy person who's juggling a lot of things at the same time. And so we've been very, very intentional about cultivating a culture of generosity and kindness and emphasizing that showing up is showing up for others, that we are here to learn from each other. And you are truly missed when you are not here. And this is one of the things that I learned from my research around belonging, by the way. It's when you ask yourself, do I really belong to this? team or this organization or even this family, a good question to ask ourselves is, am I going to be missed? Am I going to be missed if I don't show up to this meeting? Am I going to be missed if I don't show up to um, you know, this event? Am I going to be missed when I leave this organization? And when the answer is yes, then you know that you are contributing, you are adding value, and you are being valued. Hence, you do belong. And so for us, we have struggled with creating that sort of engagement where people show up in a way that deems them necessary to the entire community. And it's, you know, work in progress. I think that we have a really strong core group that is always there and that would be terribly missed if they were gone. And then, of course, as always, there are some people that kind of drop off and in spite of multiple efforts and ways of engaging them it didn't work and i suppose it happens in organizations as well you know you cannot very, always I've, i yeah. think it's very similar but especially matrix or complex matrix organization where um, many teams uh, have to rely on if you like soft soft connections or the dotted line connections as opposed to the hard reporting lines yeah so you can't compel them to come but it's how do you convince them and encourage them to do that well i appreciate your honesty I mean, I love people who practice what they preach as opposed to just talking about it and not doing it themselves. And what about you then? What, what impact are you looking to have on the world around you? What would you like others to say about you when you move to your next chapter? Well, you know, this really has to do with the nature of life. I um, always think about how transient and how short and how unexpected our life can be and how little time we have. I've lost a friend when I was, when we were quite young and that was the first wake up call. And recently we've been through challenges in my family as well with um, health issues. I lost my mom and continuously I get these reminders of our lives are so incredibly short. And I'm always thinking about those 90,000 hours that we spend at work during our lifetime. And my why and the reason why I'm doing this work is I really want to make to, to help people to make these 90,000 hours as fulfilling as possible. I really want work to become synonymous with fun, meaning, and belonging. Because at the end of the day, it's about the quality of our lives. And work has this tendency, the work life, of jumping the fence and following us everywhere we go. 
following us home, following us um, into our personal lives with our friends. So there are so many reasons why we really, I believe, should commit ourselves to doing this work. And so this is my why. And, you know, if you ask me what I would like people to say about that is that I had a contribution to uh, creating a better workplace where people can really show up at work with a sense of excitement and when they leave the office with a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment. Well, I think that's brilliant. And I, I believe you do already. And there's a lot more to come. There's a lot more to come. So I applaud you for thank that. Thank you, David. And so are you. And last, thank you. Thank you. And last question. When you're having your, your best day, you're absolutely smashing it out of the park. You know, everything's going right. What contributes to that? What practices do you use to help you have your best day? What practices? Yeah. What do you do in your day? How do you get, is it in your morning routine? Is it the way you think, your mindset? What do you do? So I'm actually quite disciplined about my morning routine because I've noticed that my most productive hours are in the morning. And if I don't set myself up for a good morning, then the whole day is not as good as it could be. So my morning routine consists of hydrating, uh, journaling. I use a method of journaling created, I suppose, by Julia Cameron. And she talks about basically filling three A4 pages with just stream of consciousness writing. So it's not writing where you try to figure something out, but you really dump your, the content of your brain on the page. And it's incredibly helpful to me. I meditate. And um, then I have my first coffee and I'm really ready at around 8 a.m. to have around two or three hours of really focused work. I try not to book any calls during that time because I know that this is my the best time during the day where I can be vigilant and focused and, and do the best work on my own. And uh, for the rest of the day, I try to have a break around noon and exercise. That really helps me to recharge. And for the rest of the day, one of the practices is I really try to be as present as I can with the people that I interact with, because typically my afternoons are interactions with people, whether in person or online. And I found that we all struggle with attention. I think it's getting worse and worse. I'm one of the people that struggle with my attention. And so I decided to be slightly more intentional about how much of myself and my attention I bring into every interaction. I'm not there yet, but I think as a practice, just reminding myself, you know, that there is nothing more important now than this conversation here in the entire world. This conversation here is the most important thing right now. It, it's really useful. And it typically leads to great things if you can stay in that space. Being intentional about your attention. Love that. You're great with your catchphrases and you, and you practice them. I go, we, we've covered a lot of ground. I've been left with a deeper appreciation of some of the core concepts in culture. We've codified how you actually do it for real. And you've shared how you go about your own work, both for the business and the communities you run and yourself. What a fantastic palette on which we've painted some beautiful, vibrant colors. Thank you for the conversation. Where can people find out more about your, your work, your book, your community, your podcast? Where can they go? Best place online is probably my website. It's agabayer.com, A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R.com. And probably the best platform to 
meet me if not in person, obviously, but uh, my avatar and the content that I post there is LinkedIn, Aga Bayer on LinkedIn. And I try to answer all of the messages that people send me. So if anyone would like to reach out and have a conversation, just hit me up over there and message me and I'm happy to connect. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm blessed to have this conversation and it's had my full attention and my head's buzzing with ideas and new things to practice in the business and obviously myself. So thank you. And that was another edition of Lancefield on the Line. I do hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please do check out the other episodes in the series. Sign up to the podcast and the YouTube channel. Give us a nice rating. And Aga, thank you ever so much again. Thank you, David. And thank you for the work that you are doing. Thank you for doing this podcast. I love it. The guests that you have are amazing. So I will definitely recommend it to our listeners as well. Pretty grateful to be here today with you. Thank you. 